Great to see you all. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. My name is Greg Paris. We're so thrilled you've joined us on campus, and if you've joined us online, we're thrilled about that too. Welcome. We're glad to have you. We're going through the Bible this year, the story, the greatest story ever told. How many of you are up to date through chapter 19? Look at you. Oh, that's so fantastic. How many of you have uh, took my advice? Just skip it. If you're five chapters behind, just skip ahead. You can catch up later. Do that. So you're, you're up to date with the story. Today's story is about the southern kingdom of Judah, which has been exiled into Babylon, modern-day Iran, and they've been there for 70 years. Daniel lived during that time, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We talked about those guys. It's been 70 years, and now they've been invited to come back home to Jerusalem. So today's message is about returning home. There's no place like home, is there? No place like home. And they've been invited to return home. I wonder today uh, who I'm talking to. I wonder if there's a person who's been living like the prodigal son, who's walked away from the faith and walked away from your relationship with God, and, and you've just been out there for a while. Maybe it's time for you to come on home. Maybe you're estranged from a family member or a close friend. And it's been bothering you for a long time. And that relationship, you feel the need to restore. Maybe it's time for you to come on back home. We've all been in a foreign land the last few years, haven't we? In so many ways. Maybe it's time for us to Come on home. We can learn from this story today as the Israelites returned back to Jerusalem. We can learn some things about the process of coming home and the steps you can take to restore relationship with God and with other people. And so I just want to share out of this text today, out of this story, four ideas that we can see in this story that are practical steps along the way of coming home. Are you ready? You good for that? Here's the first point I want to make. God will make a way in your life. If your heart is sincere, God will make a way for you to restore relationship with him and with some of the others in your life. This is something only God can do. I, I mentioned that right now, and some of you are going, no, no, not even God can make a way to restore that relationship he may be thinking about right now. But listen to the story. God did this for Judah. We look in this opening part of chapter 19 of the story, and also this is from Ezra, the Old Testament book of Ezra, chapter 1. Look on the screen at verse 1 and following. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation through the whole realm, also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. This is amazing. This is a pagan king. He has no vested interest in Jerusalem or the temple there, which has been destroyed. The Babylonians destroyed it when they took over 70 years prior, and so it lies in ruins. And now Cyrus, this new king of Persia, this is modern-day Iran, he is the superpower and the, the absolute leader of the, of the known world at the time. Everything west of India all the way to the, the Mediterranean Sea, he is, 
he is in charge of the known world. And somehow he gets a notion from Almighty God to let the Israelites, the Judeans, go back to Judah and rebuild their temple. Look what he says. And of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people who are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So not only does he give them permission to go back and rebuild the temple, but tells the people along the route to pay for it. This is amazing. This is God making a way where there seemed to be no way. If you ask these Israelites the day before this edict, do you think there's any chance they'll ever get to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple? And they say, there is not a chance in this world that that will ever happen. How many of you have had an experience in your life where God opened doors for you that just shocked you, amazed you, that you didn't think there was any hope, there was any way, there was any possibility, and God made a way for you? Don't be surprised if God will make a way for you because that's, what, that's his move, that's what he does. Now, notice a couple of things when they return. Two major changes that they make once they get back to Jerusalem. The first is they don't reinstate a king. They had been there and done that. We've lived through the story and the period of the monarchy where you have these series of kings, most of whom were wicked and evil leaders. And this is what got them in trouble in the first place. And the judgment of God, the discipline of God came to them. That's why they're exiled into Babylon, because these kings did not lead well. And so the first thing they they do is, look, we're not doing that king thing anymore. And by the way, there hasn't been a king in Israel since then. There is a king coming who will rule and reign in Israel and over the whole world. The king is coming. I told you last week, I saw that T-shirt that it says, uh, Norm... Normal isn't coming, but Jesus is. (laughs) Jesus is coming, and he is going to set up a rule and reign. The Bible says that he will rule with a rod of iron, and righteousness and justice will roll down like the waters. So there's a day coming when the king of all kings will rule and reign over our lives, and that's something to look forward to. Now, the second thing we note, if you read this chapter this week, you caught the first thing that they did immediately after their feet hit Jerusalem. And what they did, you can find in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, if you look on the screen, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. The first thing they did was they rebuilt the altar. They rebuilt the altar. What are they doing? They're putting God first in their life. Listen to me. Anytime you return home, You return to God, you return to your faith, you you return to those first loves in your spiritual life, it's time to put God first. That means you get back in church and either on campus or online, but this becomes a priority. Each week, no excuses, you open up God's word, you seek his will and his ways through his word, You bring your decisions and requests to God through prayer. You reorient your life. First things first. 
You live a life of gratitude. When you sit down to a plate of food, you give thanks, whether you're with people and friends or family or all alone. You say thank you for that. You know, you know for example, there are 2 million Ukrainians who, are, who, who, who have been displaced from their, from their home living out of a paper sack today, right now. So be thankful. Be grateful. Put God first. Say yes to God without any hesitation or any compromise. Make sure God knows that he is first place in your life. You can't do the things you used to do. Can't hang with the people you used to hang with. You can't do it. It's, 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 just, not, it's just not possible. That leads me to the second thing I want to say, and that is things need to be different. Things need to be different in your life. They can't be the way they used to be. As I mentioned, you can't hang with the same people. You can't follow the same patterns. You have to make God first place in your life. Now, here's the uh, third thing, and I, there are just four. Here's the third thing, and that is to stay alert to the enemy's schemes. Here's a fact of life. There will always, listen, there will always be people in your life who don't want you to recover. They don't want you to get better. They do not want you to succeed. There are enemies in all of our lives who don't want our best. For Judah, their primary enemy was the surrounding nations who remembered when Israel was an unstoppable force in the world, and so these Israelis are back, and so Israel becoming strong and a force again is not something that they were interested in. Didn't make them happy. One of their first schemes was to infiltrate and they offered to join up with Judah to help them rebuild the temple. And Zerubbabel, who was a leader in Israel at the time, he uh, sniffed them out. He saw their attempts to, dis uh, to dissuade them from their work. And he said in Ezra 4.3, you can see this on the screen, you have no part with us in the building of the temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. But the enemy didn't stop there. They had many more tricks up their sleeves. They used discouragement. They used fear. They used bribery. They used all kinds of obfuscation, discouragement. And guess what? It actually worked. And the people stopped building the temple, and it laid dormant for the next 10 years. And so the folks lost their priorities because they weren't alert to the enemy's schemes. And they begin to turn their attention to building their own homes and their own lives. And therein lies the biggest mistake that a follower of God ever makes in their life. Are you ready? The biggest mistake followers of God make in their life is to stop seeing God as first place. When you put yourself first and God second. Me first, God second. It's a, it's a bad idea. It's a big mistake. As you know, C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors. And let me just uh, share a statement from him. I'll put it on the screen for you. He said, if we put first things first, we get the second things thrown in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and second things. Let me share just one more quote from Lewis. He said, happiness is like a butterfly. The more you chase it, the more it will elude you. Are you following that? But if you turn your attention to other things, it will come and sit softly. Let me say it another way. Happiness is one thing, 
you can't realize by pursuing it. This is, this is counterintuitive. This is exactly the opposite of what modern, popular, secular culture tells us. Because it's all about the individual in today's world. It's all about my truth. Everyone has their own truth. It's all about my, my perspective and, and my identity and ultimately my happiness. And so I make choices. I, I engage in relationships. I choose certain lifestyles, all in order to be, the, be my, best, my best self, live my best life now in some kind of pseudo pursuit of happiness. But let me tell you, let me just tell you the truth. You cannot find happiness by chasing it. Yeah, but all I want is to be happy. That's all I care. I just want to be happy. Is that so bad? I want to be happy. The happiest people in the world, the most satisfied and contented people in the world are people who love God and love other people as a priority in their lives. People who put God first and service to others first are the happiest people in the world. I know it's shocking. It's amazing. And just the opposite is true. What I'm telling you is true. People who are all about themselves and choosing for themselves and chasing their own ideas of what's, what's right and what's good and what's happy are the people who are the least happy. They seem to be the most disgruntled and unreasonable and intolerant and angry and belligerent people in the whole world. And it's because they're not happy. And the reason they're not happy is because they're putting themselves ahead of their relationship with God and others. This is the upside-down kingdom. Jesus said it this way, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it falls to the ground and dies, then it will spring up, it'll germinate, it'll spring up and bear fruit, lots of fruit. This is actually the key to success. Jesus said, Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, in other words, going around chasing happiness all the time, you will actually lose your life. But Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake and the sake of the gospel, then you will save your life. You'll find your life. You want to find peace, contentment, satisfaction, and happiness in life? Love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is better preaching than you let on. (laughs) Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and my righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. I don't think I've convinced them yet. I'm not sure. Do I, I, let's see, what else can I say about that? This is the way to life in all of its fullness. Love God. Love people before yourself. You want to be happy? Give your life away. Give your life away. Give your life away. In service to God and others. It'll make you happy. You'll find contentment. You'll find peace of mind. Well, what happened to Judah? They put others first themselves first, 
God second, and their lives stopped working. They lost that sense of momentum. It's like someone turned off the spigot of God's blessing. They found themselves in recession. They got stuck. It sounds like contemporary reality for us because they weren't alert to the enemy's schemes. Now, that leads to the the fourth step. God will make a way. Things have to change. You got to be alert to the opposition. And the fourth thing is you have to remain open to correction. God sends prophets. We've been studying the prophets a bit. And God always sends prophets not to hurt people, harm people, but to warn the nation that if they didn't turn from their evil and their idolatrous ways, that there would be discipline from God. And this was the cycle that Israel experienced for for centuries. And so two prophets are sent to this moment of history, Haggai and Zechariah, and they warn the people, hey, listen, God's got to be first. Remember God first, not you. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember the last time you got spanked? Some of you look, just looked at me and went, what's spanked? <laughs> There's a verse in the Bible. It's in the Bible. The verse goes like this, spare the rod and spoil the child. That's shocking, I know, to postmodern Americans. Back in my day, uh, my parents practiced corporal punishment. I remember the last time I got spanked. My mother, my mother picked up something to swing at me. (laughs) And I was, I was twice her size at the time. And I found the whole experience charming. (laughs) But I, but I, you know, I needed to be spanked. We not only had corporal punishment practice in our homes back in the day, we also, they also practiced it in school. The Board of Education was applied to the seat of knowledge on a regular basis in my school growing up. Can't do that anymore. There was a TV commercial years ago. I think it was like an aftershave commercial. I, I can't, don't remember the product, actually. But it literally contained a man standing in place and a person walking up to them and slapping them. Just like that. I think it was a woman, maybe, that was smacking the guy. Bam! And he, he recoils from the slap because it wasn't a tap. I mean, it was pow. And he, he shakes his head a bit in the commercial and he goes, thanks, I needed that. How many of you remember that commercial? This is, these are old people in the room right here. They would never make a commercial like that now. But boom, and thanks, I needed that. You know, just really sincere. I appreciate that. Boy, I needed a good jolt. We need a good jolt. If you've never been spanked in your life, I will be glad to spank you (laughs) because you need it. Everybody should be spanked at least once. It's good for you. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha. So God sends the prophet Haggai to Judah to spank him. Haggai chapter 1, verse 3, you'll see it on the screen. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. 
He said, is it a time for you to, you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses? As translated paneled, it just means nice, you know, extravagant houses. While this house, the house of God, remains a ruin. By the way, in 1960, this might be interesting to some of you. In 1960, the average home in America was, was 1,000 square feet. Two bedrooms, one and a half baths, two bedrooms. Uh, I said that, uh, one car garage, 1,000 square feet. Today, the average home in America is 3,000 square feet, two levels, two and a half baths, four bedrooms, two car garage. It's just interesting. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says, again, from Haggai. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Sound familiar? This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Now, the house, the temple of God was an important thing because it was the symbol of putting God first in the culture. It was important. It was the center of spiritual life for the nation. It was the symbol of God's presence, God's dwelling among them. It was, it was the center of communal activity, not only, not only for for religious purposes and spiritual connections, but for community life and other services. It was, it, it was the ultimate symbol of God for the people of God before Jesus came. And it was important. So the prophet said, devote yourself to this. And says the Lord, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew. The earth, its crops called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, the grain, the wine, the oil, everything else the ground produces, people, livestock, all the labor of your hands has been diminished because you haven't kept God first and first place. How can God bless something that's out of order? How can we expect God to bless anything in our world that is out of order, that he does not endorse, that he does not encourage? How can we expect God's blessing on things just because we think it's okay? So the same God who intervenes in the story of Judah in these days to frustrate them, to stop them in their tracks, to help them shift their momentum, and for the purpose of getting their attention to move back in the right direction. Listen, here's an observation after doing this kind of work for 43 years now. I'm in my 43rd or 44th year of pastoral ministry. I'm just getting a good start in this. What I've observed is that it's true of my life and it's true in the lives of people I lead spiritually that most of us are not open to correction. Just not open to it. We're not teachable. We, we don't like to be, to be confronted. You know, last, last week I got on a soapbox about the role of men in their, 
in their marriages and in their families and in the community. I mean, I mean, I made a big fuss about it, calling men names of all sorts and varieties. I mean, I, I got out the biggest stick I could find and just crack, cracked men with it. Maybe you remember. This, this past week, I haven't heard from one person. <laughs> Thank you, Pastor. That woke me up. I sure appreciated that correction. Boy, I was on the wrong track. Not one person. Bunch of knuckleheads. <laughs> so when it's a marriage that's deteriorating or an addiction being formed or a negative behavior becoming a pattern, you know, a loving friend or family member tries to confront you and people still won't listen. They won't submit to it. Let me put this statement on the screen. I believe this. If you want to be a winner in life, you have to find a way to humble yourself and take tough news to heart. You have to figure out how to, how to do that. Now, for the record, I hate to be corrected, but I have observed over the years the inability to be teachable as the downfall of many, many people. You know, when, it, when, it, when there's an opportunity for a correction, it wasn't, it wasn't taken, and then the whole thing gets lost and dysfunctions. I've observed this over the years. And so I've tried to make it an intentional goal to become a person open to correction. Now, fortunately, fortunately for me, I don't make mistakes, and so it's not a big problem. But actually, I, actually, I get criticized so much that I have developed a formula around it. I, I could write a book on how to deal with criticism and complaint and confrontation. This, this, is, uh, this is a way of life for me. Apparently, I have a special gift that encourages people to do this with me. And so I've, I've developed this pattern. I'm going to share it with you. Maybe it's, it's practical enough that you can apply it as well. And the first thing I do when I'm confronted or criticized is to try to do nothing. That's the first thing. Resist the temptation to immediately react or respond or retaliate or to defend myself. It's, it's just not good. First reaction to that is usually not helpful. So take a deep breath or two or count to 10 or to 20 or whatever you need to do to try to calm down first. So that's the first thing when confronted is just hold steady for a minute and let the moment kind of dissipate some of, the, some of the pressure. The second thing I do is I consider the source. Now, you know how important this is. If this is a person who's routinely critical and not with my best interest in mind, you know, that's, that's one kind of person, and you put that in a category when they complain again. Or a person that you know loves you and a person you trust and a person who knows they have your best interest in mind. This is a whole different category of source. And so when a person like that says something to you, now the weight of that needs to be considered more carefully. By the way, confronting someone you love deeply is one of the hardest things to do in life. It's very difficult. So when someone you know loves you that way, criticizes you or offers correction, boy, that's a big thing. That's a big deal. So you got to take it into consideration. And then the third thing I do is to carefully consider what has been said. 
Now, you can put this in the criticism confrontation camp. You can also put it in the praise and appreciation camp. Whether it's good, good news for you or not so good, I am careful to consider both. I mean, some people will say to me very wonderful things, appreciative things. Uh, 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 by the way, the worst possible thing you can say to me is, that was the best sermon I have ever heard in my life. Please don't say that to me. The reason that's not helpful is because now I'm stuck with coming up with something next week after you've already heard the best sermon you've ever heard in your life. It's, 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 it's awkward. It's not, it's not helpful. The, the, the comment that I appreciate most is the person who said to me, each one of your sermons is better than the next one. I'll wait. Each one of your sermons is better than the next one. No, you didn't think it through. Or you wouldn't be cheering. Let me translate. You're getting worse as you go. I'm sorry, but that was too confusing. Apparently, you know, a play on words, you're not up for it today. Maybe it's the... It's, it's summertime, you're just too relaxed. That must be it. That's, that's, a, that's a shame. So carefully consider. So if someone says, thank you, Pastor, that was great. I pause and I say, okay, was there truth in that statement? Is there validity there? Is there value? And if it's true, then you want to absorb what's true. Okay, well, yeah, I I worked hard, and so people appreciated it. Good. Or if someone says not such nice things, whether it's from a reliable source or a very loving source, there may be truth in it either way, and so it takes discipline to do this. Now, this isn't for people who are immature. I mean, you've got to be full-grown. I mean, you've got to be a mature person. You've got to be self-aware. You have to understand yourself a little bit so that you can hear what someone has said, even though you want your instinct is to push it away. Well, that's not true because I can't believe anything they say, but it could be that some of what they've said is actually true. And so can I also process that criticism in a way that can be corrective in my life in a redemptive way? And so you have to pause and ask. Um, Years ago, I went to do a pastoral call. Um, Don't expect that from me now. If I come to your house doing a pastoral call, it means you're about to die, and you don't want to be that sick for me to come and see. If you see me come to the hospital that you're in, you're near the end, so, so you, don't, you actually don't want to see me. <laughs> Folks don't know how to take me most of the time. <laughs> My sense of humor is so dry, sometimes you just wonder, what is it, was that supposed to be funny? <laughs> Let me just say, that was both funny and true at the same time. It can be both at the same time, true and funny. So seriously, if you see me, I walked into a guy's hotel, a hospital room one day and he said, oh God, no. Because <laughs> he, he understood. He's in heaven now. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little bit off. So, so Maud Smith was 90 years old. I went to see her, and I was just being 
nice and cordial, and she was a wonderful person and one of the oldest members in our church at the time, and she was independent. She lived alone, drove herself around, perfectly lucid. She was, she was a, a strong person. And in the middle of a casual conversation, she looked at me, and she, and she said very seriously, she said, you know what your biggest problem is? Well, it just kind of came out of nowhere. You know what your biggest problem is? And she was serious. And I said, no, ma'am, but I'm pretty sure you're about to tell me. <laughs> and when you're 90, you can say anything you want to anybody, anytime. <laughs> she said, you want to win everybody to Christ before the end of the week. My first thought was, and the problem is? But I didn't get it. I didn't hear it very well because I didn't have my four points that I go through <laughs> when people are challenging me. And I left that day going, what a curious thing to say. And so I wasn't absorbing the obvious. And it wasn't, but a few weeks later, and I was out in the driveway of the parsonage and one of our prisoners pulled in. He was a farmer, a grain farmer, and had a little livestock and he'd just been in the field and he, he put, saw me and he pulled over and we chatted for a little bit. And then he looked at me and he's kind of, you know, scuffing his foot on the ground and so forth. He's working up his courage. And he just looked at me and he said, he said, Pastor, I need to tell you something. He said, you can't drive sheep. You have to lead them. So it's possible to be young and passionate, you know, visionary, gung-ho for whatever cause and misplace the higher value of making sure people are cared for and coming along. And you may be sitting there today going, what was the matter with him? What a sad state of affairs. <laughs> but listen. Spouse, listen, parent, listen, teacher, listen, manager of people, business owner, coach. You can't drive sheep. You have to lead them. So there's an application point for all of us who lead. And I learned my lesson. Slowly, still learning. It's a good lesson, isn't it? The fourth thing I do is I give it back to God. Whether it's good news or bad news, whether it's encouragement or confrontation, I take it for what it's worth from the source from which it came, try to assimilate the value in it, and then I give it back to God. Because as it turns out, anything good that any of us do and any, any praise that we might receive in life is only because of the grace of God. And so he is the only one worthy of this kind of celebration. And so, God, I appreciate the encouragement from this person, but I give it back to you because you're the only one who keeps me on track. And without your grace and sustaining presence, I'll never do another right thing in my life. And then if it's a bad thing, I remind myself of the words Jesus said, listen, take my yoke upon you. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. In other words, I'll walk underneath that burden that you carry with you and I'll help support you. He said, cast all of your anxieties upon me because I care for you. 
And so here's the invitation by Jesus himself that even when we carry the burden of disappointment and failure and the criticism that follows it, we can give that over to Jesus as well and let him carry that. All of our failures and disappointments, he's willing to absorb. Don't we serve a wonderful God? Isn't he a beautiful savior? Isn't he amazing? Isn't this grace amazing? It's amazing that he would carry our burdens for us. Now back to Judah, when Haggai and Zechariah delivered the news to them, hey, you guys, you got the main thing, the wrong thing, and the wrong thing, the main thing, and so you've got to lay down those lesser things like building your own house, and we've got to get back to God's house. In other words, we've got to put God first and not ourselves first. And you know the amazing thing? Their response to the prophets was, they did it. This is remarkable. This is amazing, so encouraging. They listened, and the work of the temple resumed, and they completed the temple. And once again, they began to experience the favor of God and the blessing of God and the wind of God in their sails, and they found the peace of God and the happiness of knowing him and loving each other in a beautiful community of faith. Amazing. They got it. They did it. So it's possible to get this right and to enjoy the benefits and blessings of getting it right. Hey, listen, you want to come back home? Come on back home. Come on back home. There's no place like home. Come back to Jesus. Oh, I know you've known him. You gave your life to him. But you've been away. You've been away for a while. Who am I talking today online? Come on back home. Father's waiting to receive you. Maybe you've been estranged from an important person in your family or a friend in your life. And you've had this gnawing sense that God wanted you to take the first step in restoring that relationship. Time to take it. Come on back home. Would you think about that for a moment as we pray? No, I'm talking to folks who need to repent, return to your first love, your first passion. Maybe you're a person who's said, yeah, well, I came back, but I'm still going through a season of testing. I'm just like people who went back to Jerusalem. I went back, I went home, but I still struggled. Well, if God is speaking to you through this season of testing, let me ask you today, are you listening? Are you listening? Are you being distracted from God's purposes for your life? Have you let second things become first things, lesser things becoming the main thing? Let me pray for you. For those of you who need to come back home to your meaningful relationship to Jesus, Lord, I pray for your grace, your welcoming, loving arms to be extended to anyone ready to come home. God, today, in this moment, you're making a way. Now, we know things will have to be different. Changes will have to be made. Enemies are real. Distractions, they're everywhere. And we'll have to be open to and remain open to correction. In spite of all that, God, 
I need to come home. And for those of you who maybe don't need to come home, but you have someone you love and you know who needs to come home. And that includes all of us, I guess. We pray, oh God, to all of these people, you would send your favor, perhaps through an unexpected source, like a King Cyrus. Do something unusual, God. Send a messenger. Send a prophet. Send a friend. Lord, send one of us. Send one of us. Here I am. Send me. So that, Lord, we would repent from our carelessness, our foolishness, submit afresh and anew our life into your care, into your hands. Just return home. Lord, by your grace, thank you for enabling us to do that right now. In Jesus' name, for his sake. And all the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?